If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention to the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. I'll begin reading with verse 26 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Today's message is entitled, I am the bread of life. And it is one of the seven sayings recorded by John. There are others, but we have selected seven of them that we're going to be focusing on for the next several weeks. And today we're going to be focusing on the name that Jesus gave, I am the bread of life. So John chapter six, beginning with verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Jesus because he had said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things Jesus said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he has been before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew that the beginning who, from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It is interesting to me that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record two of the miracles that Jesus performed. Now, they recorded others, but all four recorded two. The first and most obvious miracle that Jesus performed that all four Gospel writers wrote about is the resurrection of Jesus. How after being in the tomb for three days, rose from the dead... The other miracle that all four of the gospel writers record is the feeding of the 5,000 with bread and with fishes. The one that we have just referred to or actually before the, you enter the first parts of chapter 6 would tell you how he fed 5,000 with a little boy's Sunday lunch. His mom packed us a meal for him with bread and, and fish, probably little biscuits, not whole loaves of bread, but probably little biscuits called loaves of bread and the fish, and he'd fed 5,000 people, had a whole lot left over. In fact, it said that they gathered up 12 baskets full of food that were left over that the 5,000 people who were there did not eat, yet they went away full. So Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels of having performed the miracle of taking a small amount of food and multiplying it after having prayed over it and fed a whole multitude of people. However... It is only Mark in his gospel that tells us why Jesus did it. 
Mark says that Jesus looked upon the crowd and had compassion. The word compassion meaning love. So it was out of concern for and love for those people that Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000 with just a small lunch that a little boy had. And Jesus blessed that crowd and blessed the food that he gave to them. Jesus did this because he had compassion for them. Isn't it wonderful to know that God loves us the way he does and that he provides for us everything that we need to remember from last Sunday's sermon. I told you that the words I am simply mean that God is all sufficient and that God is interested in you and concerned about you and will supply any and every need that you had and made the apostle Paul say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus and he does all of it because he loves us. Jesus looks upon us today with compassion out of love. Now, the more you consider the crowd that followed Jesus, the more you discover how much they resemble us. Crowds are the same no matter where they are. People are people no matter where they are, whether they are fans at a football game or teens at a rock concert or customers at a shopping mall or a crowd of people who've gathered on Sunday morning to worship the Lord. The people in the crowd that Jesus fed on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee were just like you and just like me. Hunger is something that God has built into the human body to remind us to eat because we cannot live, we cannot survive without eating and drinking. But there's also a deeper spiritual hunger in the human heart that can never be satisfied with anything else other than God. Just as the Saint Augustine once said, every heart is built in the shape for God and nothing can satisfy it but God himself. Jesus records, or John records Jesus calling himself the bread of life and the bread of heaven throughout this entire chapter, the verses that I have just read. Jesus was using bread, a familiar material object to teach a spiritual truth. You receive bread into your body and it sustains your life, but receiving Jesus into your heart by faith gives you eternal life. To eat something means to assimilate it and to make it a part of your physical body. When you eat, you put the food in your mouth, you chew it, you swallow it, and it goes down into your stomach, and the stomach digests it, and it becomes a part of your human body. But language uses the metaphor of eating to describe the process of understanding the Lord. Let me give you some examples of how we use the metaphor of eating something, but it's not literally eating that. Just like Jesus, when he said, uh, you, ha you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. Now we're not cannibals. Jesus was not a cannibal. He was speaking metaphorically that just as you eat bread and drink water, then you eat and drink what I have to give to you. The physical food gives you physical life, but what I have to give to you is eternal life. So we say such things, uh, uh, well, I'll have to digest what you just said. Well, does that mean that you take his words and swallow them and digest them? No. Or maybe you, you might say as some of these people who walked away from Jesus, they no doubt said, well, I can't swallow that. I can't swallow that. Or you might say that's food for thought. 
Or someone might say, a pastor, for example, might say, my congregation is so young in the faith, I have to spoon feed them. Or a businessman might say to his staff, now here's a program that you can sink your teeth into. Or a student might say, I really devoured that book. Well, do we take those expressions literally? No, they're spoken metaphorically. They're just saying something figuratively of what they're doing mentally and spiritually in their hearts. The Bible does the same thing. For example, in Psalm 34, 8, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Or in Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or what the prophet Jeremiah said, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Now this doesn't mean that he literally ate the pages out of the scroll that he was reading. He was speaking metaphorically. I read, I tasted, it was sweet to my mouth, sweeter than honey. So when we come to these words of Jesus in the sixth chapter of John's gospel, he is not saying literally, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He was speaking metaphorically. He was saying, as you eat bread and drink wine or juice or water, it becomes a part of you physically, likewise spiritually. When you take what I say and when you receive me into your heart as your Lord and your Savior, I give to you eternal life. Now, on your bulletin today, I've given you three major ideas that I want to pursue in the moments that remain concerning Jesus as being the bread of life. And the first thing that I want to explore, of course, is that Jesus is the source of life. He is the source of life. He said, if you eat the bread and drink the, the water that, I give, or that you, you do physically, you, you get physical life. But I am the source and the origin of eternal life. I am not just bread. I am living bread. I am the bread of life. And we cannot have spiritual life, eternal life without Jesus. Now, on your outline, I've given you two thoughts. First of all, Jesus is the source of life, and he came from God. He came from God. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and look at John chapter 6. And I want you to begin looking at verse 31. In verse 31, this is what Jesus said. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as is written. He gave them bread, where? Out of heaven. So where did Jesus come from? He came out of heaven. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not bread who is Moses who have given you that bread where out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the, the true bread out of heaven. Then look, if you would, at verse 33, for the bread of God is that which came down out of heaven. So over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, I came out of heaven. I came out of heaven. Skip down to verse 38. For I have come down from where? From heaven. Look at verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said that he it was the bread that came down out of heaven. Look at verse 42. I have come down out of heaven. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Verse 50 he says, this is the bread which came down out of heaven. Look at verse 58. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Over and over, eight different times in these passages of scripture, Jesus said, where did I come from? I came from heaven. I came out of heaven. So he came to for, fulfill, of course, the desire of the father. As the bread of life, 
Jesus gives us life. Now, Peter tells us in his epistle that it is not God's desire for any person to perish, but that all might come to repentance. So God does not delight in nor desires to send anybody to hell. But people go to hell because they choose to not follow Jesus or to accept him. But Jesus came down out of heaven in order to provide a way for us to escape the place of, 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 of hell. Not only did he come down out of heaven, but he came because the Father sent him. Look, go back to John chapter 6. This time look at verse 29. In verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of the Father, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So who sent Jesus into the world? The Father did. Jesus was in heaven. He says again, I came out of heaven. Well, who sent him? Jesus said, the Father has sent me. Look, if you would, down at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. So again, he's saying, I'm not here of my own initiative. I'm here because the Father sent me. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but will raise it up at the last day. Look at verse 44. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then, of course, look at verse 57, all the way down to verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. So over and over again, eight times he says, I came out of heaven. Five times he says, the Father has sent me. This is the Father's desire. This is the Father's will. That Jesus would come into the world, offer eternal life, and those who would receive him would never perish but have everlasting life. Not only did he come because of the Father's desire, but also according to the Father's plan. I've written references to you in your bulletin, Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 1 as well. But Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and verse 4, Jesus, uh, Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we, we would be holy and blameless before him. So he is saying God has a plan. He sent Jesus into the world to save you so that you could become holy, so that you could be righteous before him. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8 through 11, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from eternity. So the Father sent Jesus. Jesus came from God. From the Father, it was the Father's desire, it was the Father's plan, and Jesus came to fulfill the Father's desire and plan. The second thing that you notice, not only did Jesus come from the Father, but he came for all mankind. And he came in answer to their cry. Now, I want to go back to the book of Exodus. You remember last week we were in the book of Exodus looking at Moses standing before the burning bush. And... uh, 
the Lord was sending him to deliver the people of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. And in the book of Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and in verse 9, in verse 7 of Exodus 3, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their what? Their cry. They were crying out to God for deliverance. The same thing in verse 9. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So the, the, the Israelites cried out to the Father, and the Father, of course, sent Moses to deliver them. Now, the Bible also tells us that people cry out, going back to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, I want you to look at verse uh, 34. John chapter 6 and verse 34. Jesus was talking about his being the bread, how that the bread that the people in, in Israel in the days of Moses ate, it didn't come from Moses, it came from the Father. And he was talking about himself being the bread of God that came out of heaven. In verse 34, they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. It wasn't necessarily a cry, but it was certainly a request. Back in Egypt, while they cried out, they were requesting and begging and asking God, deliver us. And now uh, these people are asking Jesus, always give us this bread. When you got saved, what did you do? You called upon God. You cried out to the Father, Lord, save me. You may not have screamed or had tears, but you made a request you asked and invited Jesus to come into your heart, and it did so in response to your cry. Not only did he send Jesus to mankind in answer to their cry, but in answer to their need. Go back to the book of Genesis for just a moment. The third chapter of the book of Genesis. This is the account, of course, when the devil tricked and deceived Eve and Adam into eating the forbidden fruit. And the Lord came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, asking Adam, Adam, where are you? And God, you remember, did not ask that question because he was ignorant as to where they were. God knew where they were. God knew what uh, they had done. So he didn't ask that question for his own benefit. He asked it for Adam and Eve's benefit. For now they needed to realize that things were not going to be the same as they had been. Now sin had entered the picture and had separated them from God. And so now they needed an answer to their sin. They needed deliverance from their sin. And so then the Lord God said, verse 30, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent them out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he had taken them. You see, had they now taken and eaten the fruit of the tree of life, they would have lived forever in a fallen, lost condition. And so God uh, expelled them from the Garden of Eden, put a cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword turning, keeping them from ever entering it again, because if they had done that, they would have been doomed forever. And so they had a need there that was met. And of course, we know that uh, God took uh, an animal and slaughtered it and took the skin of that animal and made a, a, a covering for their nakedness. 
He, man had attempted, uh, Adam had attempted to cover their naked with, uh, nakedness with leaves, and it was inadequate. But God took the skin of an animal, and where did he get that skin? Well, he, he had to have killed uh, and sacrificed an animal somewhere in the Garden of Eden to skin it and provide clothing for, the, for their nakedness. So without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. But in John chapter 6, go back to John chapter 6, look at verse 32 and 35. John 6, 32 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the bread out of heaven. And in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So Jesus is the source of life. He came from the Father. The Father sent him according to his desire and his plan. He came to mankind because man has cried out for deliverance and for forgiveness of sin. And Jesus has met that cry and answered that cry by the sacrifice of his own self. So he is the source of eternal life. But notice the second thing. Not only is Jesus the source of life, he is the strength of life. He is the strength of life. Now go back with me to Egypt, to, to Exodus chapter 16. They have been delivered from the bondage of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. Now they're in the wilderness. They've been there for several months and, and uh, uh, they, they are hungry. Uh, they're crying out and grumbling uh, uh, against Moses because they, he said, we wish we had stayed back in Egypt and at least we had a, a roof over our head. We had food that we could eat. You've brought us out here in the wilderness to die of starvation. They were grumbling and complaining against Moses. And God heard their cry again and provided bread for them. It was called manna, manna. Manna means what is it? Uh, they woke up one morning and they walked outside their tents and the ground was just covered white like snow with little round wafers. They were white and round. It was bread. It was called manna, but that's what the word manna means. They looked at it and said, well, what is it? Manna, what is it? It's bread from heaven. Now, what I'm pointing out to you is in Exodus 16, verse 4, verse 21, verse 35. Listen to this. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people will go out and gather what? How much? A day's portion every day, every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instructions. Verse 21, they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Verse 35, the sons of Israel ate the manna for 40 years until they came into an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, what am I trying to say to you? What is the Bible saying to us here? God gave them bread. God answered their cry. And he gave them manna, the little round wafers. It was bread. But they had to gather it every day. They could not gather a, a whole week's amount of bread and, and put it in the pantry or put it in the refrigerator and then go to it whenever they wanted it. They would gather it for a day. At the end of the day, if any of it was left over, it would melt. Every single morning for 40 years, 
they had to go out and gather enough food for the day. The only exception to this was on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was a holy day and they were not to work on, the holy, on a holy day. And so the Lord allowed them to gather uh, the day before the Sabbath enough bread to last for two days. Any other time, you could only gather a day's amount of bread. It had to be a daily task, a daily diet that they did. I believe the same thing is true for you and for me. Now, we can go for a few days without eating anything, for a few days without drinking anything, but, but we can't last forever without it. Uh, you have to have a steady diet, a daily diet, to sit down somewhere at a table and eat food in order that you can have nourishment physically to live and to do your work. Likewise, spiritually, you need to develop the habit of every single day going to the living word who is Jesus Christ and to the written living word which is the word of God and feast upon Jesus and feast upon the word of God on a daily basis. Let it be a daily diet that you seek out the Lord in prayer and that you seek the word of God in the reading and the meditating of it and the hiding of it in your heart that you might not sin against God. Now, why a daily diet? I've given you four reasons here on your outline. First of all, because you are under a daily attack from Satan. Every single day of your life, every day when you wake up, you are in a spiritual warfare. The devil is like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. And you must be spiritually equipped to fight the devil. It's a daily spiritual warfare. And you cannot do it of your own strength or your own initiative. You've got to feed upon the word of God. In the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, Paul describes the armor that you're to be dressed in as a spiritual soldier of Jesus Christ. And the only offensive weapon you have is the sword, which is the word of God. So you've got to feast upon the word of God in order to offstand or, or, or defend yourself uh, against the attacks of the devil. That's what Jesus did as recorded in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus said, you, uh, Satan said, you've been out here fasting all of this time. You're the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. You've got to be hungry. Jesus said, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And of course, he took him to a high pinnacle, told him, jump off. It's written, the angels have been given charge over you. They're not going to let you die. Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Satan paraded all the nations of the world before him and said, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the nations of the world. Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shall you worship. Everything the devil said in tempting Jesus, Jesus counterattacked. By quoting scripture, you need to do the same thing. Then there are daily decisions that you have to make. If you want to live a life in keeping with God's will and purpose and plan, then you need to have wisdom. And you, if you, you get wisdom from the reading of God's word. And then daily growth. Again, as you feast upon the word of God and feast upon Jesus, you'll grow stronger every day so that daily you might serve our Lord. These are just a few of the reasons why it is important for you to have a daily diet of God's word and communion with the living Christ so that you can have the strength that you need to live a life that is pleasing to and in, and in keeping with God's will for your life. The third and final thing that I say to you is not only that Jesus is the source of life and the strength of life, he's also the satisfaction of life. 
the satisfaction of life. Jesus satisfies the demands of the law. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible says there is now, uh, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled. You see, the reason why you cannot be saved, it would be great if we could be saved by keeping the law. The only problem is nobody has and nobody can. You cannot, you might say, well, I live a pretty good life. Yeah, that, that, that's great. That's commendable. I commend you for it. But if you're depending on keeping the law to save you, you're in for a big disappointment, my friend, because nobody, you know, it's just like, you know, what makes a chain weak? Just, just one link, that's all, just one link. It'll make a chain useless. How many laws do you have to break in order to be a sinner? Hundred of them, ten of them, no, just one. That's all, just one. Tell a little lie, lust after somebody, you know, take something that's not yours, stealing. You know, you just do one thing. One thing is all, and you're automatically a sinner. And there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. You cannot pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps and expect to go to heaven because you're such a, per a good person. No. There are none of us good, no, not one. And Jesus Christ came to do for us what we could not accomplish by keeping the law or the law could do for us because it is all of the flesh and all of us are evil. I came across a statement the other day that helped me to answer the question is, you know, if God is so good and if God is so loving, why does he allow evil to exist in the world? And the best answer that I found the other day was right there, right in front of my, my nose, you might say. You remember that time when some of the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, hey during the night, somebody and came and they, they sowed tares among the wheat. We didn't know it. But now the plants are beginning to sprout up and we've noticed that there are tares among the wheat. Would you like for us to go and, and, and pull out all of the tares and, and just let the wheat grow? You remember what Jesus said? He said, no, let them both alone. Let them grow up together. And then in the harvest, we'll gather it up and the tares will be separated from the wheat, the wheat over here and the tares will be burned and the wheat will, of course, be living. Let me ask you a question. If God were to remove everybody from this world that's evil, do you think you'd be here? I doubt it. Nobody would be here because all of us are evil. Oh, you don't like to think about it in that way, but you are. You, apart from Jesus Christ, are an evil person. You are an evil person who is an enemy of Almighty God. You are unrighteous and filthy in his sight. If you were to gather up all the goodness that there is about you and put it around you like a robe, your robe would be in the eyes of God as filthy rags. And that's why you ought to be thankful that God allows evil to exist with the good until the harvest comes. Oh, it's coming. There will come a time when evil will be separated from the good but you don't want it to happen now. You let the Lord do it through the angels. Let them gather them up. 
But uh, God, uh, Jesus meets the requirements of the law. Secondly, Jesus satisfies the demands of holiness. The demands of holiness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus met the demands of the law and he meets the demands of holiness. And when you got saved, what happened was the Holy Spirit took the holiness or the righteousness of Jesus and transplanted it into your life. And when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your holiness and your righteousness because there is none. He sees the holiness of Jesus that has come into your life when you trusted him and there's satisfaction there. And then of course, Christ satisfies the demands of the human heart, the demands of the human heart. Psalm 107 and verse nine, for he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. Oh, there's nobody who can satisfy the hunger of your heart like Jesus does. Uh, let me remind you of the parable that our Lord told as recorded in the 16th chapter of, the Luke, of Luke's gospel. He told three, three parables there, but there's the parable that we refer to as the prodigal son. You remember the story how Jesus said there was this father who had two sons. And one day one of his sons came to him and demanded that the father go ahead and divide up the inheritance and give him his portion of the inheritance so that he could go and live his life the way he wanted to. So the father did so, and what did the son do? It says he went off to a far country, which means he, we like to say in our vernacular, maybe went to the big city where he thought he'd have a great time. But it says also that when he got there and fell among friends, it said that he squandered his living, that is he took what, what he had been given as his inheritance, and he just wasted it. You know, that's what the word prodigal means. The word prodigal means wasteful. And he took that portion of his inheritance and went up to the big city and the bright lights to have a good time. And he just squandered his wealth. He just wasted his wealth. And then it says he began to be impoverished. <laughs> he ran out of money. And then it says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine had eaten. Uh, that is, he, he, he had to get a job, had to make a living somehow, so he fed pigs, which was a, 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 an insulting thing, a humiliating thing for a Jew. A Jew wouldn't have anything to do with pork. And here he is in the pig pen, and he's so hungry, starving to death, that he's having to eat the same food that he's feeding the pigs. Furthermore, it says, no one was giving anything to him. He became a beggar. Would you give me something to eat? No, there's a famine in the land. We only have enough to eat food for ourselves. You see, when your money runs out, your friends run out too. So here he is having to fill his belly with the pods that he was giving to the pigs. But then it says he came to his senses and he said, I've sinned. Oh, there's the beginning. You've got to get to the point when you realize you have sinned. And the Bible says we've all sinned, that there's none righteous, no, not one, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so he's sitting here or standing here in this pig pen and he's got his hands full of the very pods that he's feeding to the pigs. And he said, you know what? I have sinned. I have sinned. The slaves, servants back home 
are eating better food than I'm eating. They're having a better life than I'm having. I know what I'll do. I'll get up out of this pig pen and I'll go back to my father and I'll confess to my father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired servant. And so he gets up out of the place where he is and he goes back to his father and his father, whom I like to refer to as the waiting father, because I see him every day going to the door and looking down the trail or the road, looking maybe for his son to come back home. And one day he sees somebody walking up the trail. Could that be him? Yes, I believe it is. I believe it is. And so he takes out running. He goes, yes, it is my son. And he falls upon him, puts his arms around him and weeps over him and kisses him and welcomes his back. And what does his son say? Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Doesn't matter, son. Welcome home. Welcome home. And he says to his servants, go kill the fatted calf. Let's party. Let's have a good time. This is my son who was lost. He's been found. He was dead and he's alive. And they've celebrated his coming home. So many people in this world are like that prodigal son. They take what little bit they have in life and they go spend it on what they think will give them satisfaction and fulfillment. Only to end up eating the husk that the world has to throw at them. So how do you get back to the father? How do you get back to Jesus? You have to come to your senses. You remember what happened to the Gadarene demoniac when Jesus cast the demons out of him and, and the people ran uh, to the city and brought all these people out to see what had happened? They saw this man that was crazy, so full of the demons that they couldn't tame him. And, he, and, and, and what it says, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus and he was clothed and he was in his right mind. In his right mind. Oh, you go to the world thinking it's going to satisfy every hunger that you've got. You're crazy. You're out of your mind because it will deceive you and it will lead you down the path of destruction. The only way to go to find satisfaction is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? Instead of eating the pods that he gave to the pigs, he was eating from the fatted calf. The fatted calf. And Jesus will do the same for you. Now, Time's up, but let me finish with this. Jesus spoke of his death in this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. How do you make bread? Well, you take wheat or corn, whatever, you crush it and you grind it and then you mix it up with what other ingredients you have and you put it in the oven and bake it and then you can eat it. How do you get saved? Well, Jesus said it's like a, like a grain of wheat. It falls to the ground and it dies. It's crushed. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, Prior to his being nailed to the cross, he was beaten. He was so beaten, the, the Bible says in the prophecy of Isaiah, they looked upon him, they could hardly tell he was a human being. He was so bloody. He was crushed. And he died on the cross, becoming sin for you, that you might taste the living bread, that you can live forever. 
Now it says in John's gospel chapter 6 and verse 66 that as a result of Jesus saying to the people that he was the bread of life that had come down from the Father, from heaven, it says in verse 66 that they withdrew from him and would not walk with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's commendable of Peter. I mean, he said, Lord, there's nobody else we can turn to who can give us life. We believe that you are the bread which came down from heaven and that you are the living bread and we accept you as such. My, how commendable. But that's not how the chapter ends. The chapter does not end with Jesus commending Peter uh, for what he said about him. The chapter ends with a warning, a warning to Judas Iscariot. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you but the 12 and one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So Peter thought he was speaking for the whole crowd, for the whole 12 apostles, but there was one of the apostles who had lived with Jesus for three years, had slept in the same room with him, had walked down the same trail with him, had heard him teach, saw him do miracles, and yet betrayed him, but lived as though he were one of them. Now, there are three choices that were shown to you on the screen this morning before our service began that you have to make. You can't make all three. You can only pick one. When it comes to making a decision about Jesus Christ, you believe in him and get saved just like the 11 disciples did. They believed and they were saved. You believe and you're saved. The second choice is you reject him. But then you pretend that you're religious. Oh, you're a church member somewhere. You try to live a good life. You know, hell's going to be full of good people because they never believed in Jesus. They never put their faith in the Lord. And there may be some of you here today who are like that. You fool your family. You fool yourself. You fool people in the workplace or here at church or whatever thinking you're a real strong religious person. But you've never had a life-changing experience with a living God and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. And so you're rejecting him, but you're pretending that you know him. Just like Judas, they never, it never dawned on the other 11 that there was anybody among them who was going to betray Jesus because he was so convincing of how good he was. And then, of course, there's that third decision that you have to make is what the multitude did. The multitude who came to Jesus just to be fed the physical food. When Jesus said, I'm the bread of life that came down from the Father out of heaven, they said, we can't stomach this. We're not going to digest this. And so they just turned and walked away. I hope that would not include you. I hope and pray with all of my soul that the Holy Spirit, if he hasn't already done so, would open the eyes of your soul 
so that you might see that Jesus Christ is indeed coming to the, from the Father from heaven to become living bread so that you can live forever. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for loving us. It was said of Jesus that the reason why he fed them physically was because he had compassion for them. But he was also using that example of feeding them physical bread to teach a great spiritual lesson that as one must eat physical food in order to sustain himself physically, he must also eat spiritual food in order to sustain himself spiritually. So Jesus, we gladly, willingly, recognize you as the son of God, the living bread who came down from heaven, sent from the father in order to give us eternal life. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, as we come to this time of invitation, that you would speak to those who are here who may have never trusted Christ, although they're seemingly religious, but they've never had a real life-changing, personal, intimate relationship with you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll show them who Jesus is, that you'll bring conviction to their heart, help them to realize like the prodigal son, they need to be willing to confess that they have sinned against heaven and that they've sinned against the son and that uh, they would trust you as Lord and Savior and that, that you would give them the strength and the leadership to come and make it public that we might all rejoice with them together. Should there be others here who have decisions to make, may this be a time of bringing glory and honor to you and we we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if God's Holy Spirit is speaking to you and leading you to come forward, I'll be here to greet you.